Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martingano, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here today with my co-host, Jessica May. Jessica is a graduate student in the Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology program here at UWGB. She's been a part of the Psychology and Stuff team for a while now, working behind the scenes to make sure that these episodes get uploaded on time each fortnight. She's also the genius behind the social media for psychology and stuff. So I'm really thrilled to have you here. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for those kind words. It means a lot. And thanks for having me on today. Oh, wonderful. I just want to reiterate how much the Psychology and Stuff podcast relies on your behind the scenes work. Uh, Perhaps could you let the listeners know a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I'd love to. So I have the good fortune of participating in the behind the scenes administrative prep that goes into producing the podcast. So that includes creating short promotional clips, audio clips of the episodes, which we use on social media posts, uploading the episodes to the podcast platform, creating and posting some of the promotional pieces that we create to get the word out about episodes. I monitor comments and also listener stats to help us, you know, figure out what's working, what we might want to tweak and things like that. Yeah. So I know we, we sound so polished and wonderful when, when our listeners hear us, but a lot of it is, is to do with uh, Jessica's seamless work but behind the scenes. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about you as a, as a student. Uh, and you've described yourself to me before now as a, a non-traditional student. And I was just wondering if you could explain what exactly that means and, and what it's like. Yeah, um, I, I do believe there probably is a formal definition because my alma mater, I got my undergraduate at UW Parkside, and they actually are celebrating non-traditional student week this week. So I know it's a thing and I'm not just kind of dreaming it up. Um, and Parkside, they're, they're, they kind of consider it at the undergraduate level, a student over the age of 25. Now I'm a graduate student and my guess is that number um, is higher than the age of 25 for graduate programs because people come to grad school at various stages of life. But in my observation on campus, uh, there are, I can't assume, I am assuming, but I don't (laughs) think there's a a whole lot of people my age on campus. So I think I can safely say I remain a non-traditional student in that regard. Yeah, I think your assumptions are are not far off, at least for the students we have in the psychology department in the undergraduate program. Uh, So I'm teaching research methods this semester, and I was just, uh, actually, I was running from that class to come come host this podcast, and we were crunching some numbers on the data students had uh, collected from other students, and they're creating histograms of the age ranges, and they're all skewed, mostly 18, 19-year-olds. So I think your your assumption is, is pretty spot on there, Jessica. Uh, so our guest today, uh, and we do have a guest, uh, I, I promise we will get to her, uh, is a, a faculty member in your program in the Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology program. Uh, and so before we get to her, I wonder if you can tell me from a student's perspective a little bit more what it's like. Well, um, we're, working with our guest today has been it's been fabulous. Um, I have one class with um, our guest and um, we're going to learn more about uh, area of expertise and things like that. But just a little spoiler alert, what I love about it is, so um, I'm a grad student in the sport exercise and performance psychology uh, program. And 
Um, a lot of the emphasis is on sport, um, but notice the word performance is in there as well. And I came to the program really, really interested um, in performance. And so um, I have a keen interest in supporting um, performers in theater, um, singers and, and musicians and actors and things like that. And I really ultimately want to land working in higher education um, as a academic in academic support student services. And so our guest today um, has experience and does research in non-traditional domains um, in sport psychology. And so that's what's been, you know, everything's been amazing working with her, but that in particular really lights me up because I just, you know, hang on every word about really everything in the program, but particularly those things that um, are a little more non-traditional. So it's been absolutely fantastic. I have, um, this is my first semester of grad school. So, you know, it's, it's it's um, it's a learning experience for everybody, but it's been such a great um, start to the journey. We are challenged, but we're also really, really well supported. And so very, very grateful for all of the faculty, but our guest is really top notch. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, that's so great to hear. Uh, so now that our listeners have heard a, a little bit more about her, I'm thrilled to formally introduce Dr. Chelsea Wooding. Uh, and so Dr. Wooding is a former competitive dancer and a certified mental performance consultant. She has consulted in a variety of settings, including high school and collegiate sport, as well as non-traditional settings, including working with nursing students, musicians, dancers, ultra runners, and corporate clients. She is the author of Every Count Matters, Mindset Training for Dancers, and this semester joined the UWGB graduate program in sport exercise and performance psychology as an assistant professor. We are thrilled to have you here, Chelsea. How are you doing? I am great. And I am so excited to be here as well. And Jessica, I'm so sorry you had to say all those things. I hope it wasn't too torturous for you to have to lie on record and, and say those things. But no, I am. I'm so excited to be here with you both. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're thrilled to have you here. Uh, so you, you've been here now, what is it, four months? How are you settling into UWGB? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big question, but I am having a blast so far. Of course, there is a very steep learning curve, not just moving to a new city, but also stepping into a new role, a new program, a new department, working with new colleagues, getting to know new students. But that's really where my passion lies is not only collegiality with my fellow faculty and staff members, but also helping undergrads find their path and then graduate students deepen their knowledge to move forward on whatever journey they identify as the right fit for them. So it's been exhausting, but in the best possible way, because I leave drained and filled at the same time, which sounds like a contradiction, but I promise you it is it is not. So I am finding my footing, starting to find where I fit, but every day is just, I get out of bed ready to go, ready for whatever the day holds. Oh, you know, that that's such a wonderful description of what it feels like to be a professor sometimes, <laughs> of, of being both draining and energizing simultaneously. I feel that a lot when I come out of a classroom. Uh, so you're a certified mental performance consultant. I had to write that down. <laughs> and so I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners and honestly for me too, yeah. what that means. 
Of course, I would love to. So Certified Mental Performance Consultant is the certification um, driven by the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and the Canadian Sports Psychology Association. Um, our two organizations have come together to sponsor this certification and essentially very similar to becoming an LPC in counseling or a psychologist in psychology under the sport and performance psychology umbrella, there are two types of training. There's a clinical path and there's more of an educational path that focuses more on mental skills training. So rather than helping people with those mental health concerns, think your DSM diagnoses, we can come alongside performers, athletes of any type and talk to them about mental skills training. Basically the way a strength and conditioning coach helps you train physically, we come alongside and try to help you train mentally. So things like confidence, leadership, communication, self-talk, all those skills that we understand are important, that we don't necessarily deliberately or purposefully train, that's where a certified mental performance consultant can come in and help. So the certification is simply to show a level of competency, a level of training, Again, very similar to other licensures or other certifications like athletic trainers, we have to recertify every few years. So it's a way to represent not only my training, my background, that I've reached that level of competency, but also that I'm committed to maintaining that training, um, continuing to learn. I'm a big proponent of lifelong learning. I believe that the things we know are microscopic compared to the things that we can know. And so for me, it's a way to show students, potential clients, the general public, that this is a way for us to show our commitment to learning, just like we ask clients and students to learn as well. Wow, thank you. There was a lot more involved in that than I, think I had I had assumed, so I appreciate the, the clarification. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, and I will just jump in and say, you might, you might have noticed, Allison Jane, that Chelsea said sport not sports. And I learned that from Chelsea on day one, that it's sport psychology, not sports psychology. And I have a Google alert turned on for sports psychology. And I can't tell you how many, you know, like articles where I would think they would know um, refer to it as sports psychology. So a little um, piece of trivia for the listeners. It is um, formally referred to as sport psychology. Well, Just I have learned something there. <laughs> Thank you. Jessica, I so appreciate you bringing that up. It's a big myth in our field. When you say the phrase very quickly, it sounds like sports psychology. Um, the reason that S is so important is because really what our field is about is the psychology of sport. When you use the phrase sports psychology, it sounds like it's only applicable to sports spaces. And the reality is the skills that we talk about, that list that I just provided, applies to every space in life, every hat that we wear. I use these skills as a teacher every day. I use these skills as a spouse every day. I use these skills as a dog mom every day. And so for me, understanding that it is sport psychology, the psychology of sport and performance, allows us to broaden our field and be more creative about who we reach out to, to help learn these skills, to benefit them so they can perform the way they want to when performance matters most. 
Yes, it's huge. And I just love, and I think we're going to bring it back to that a lot during our chat today is that this is applicable to everyone and everything. And um, we write blog posts periodically in Chelsea's theories class. And I just wrote on um, the way a, a school board, a board of education could, you know, utilize goal setting and maybe work with a, a mental performance consultant on doing that well. And even I'm in the program and I'm learning this every day, but even I had to sit with it and thought, you know, is this is this applicable? And I, it's like, yes, it is. So it's very exciting to make those connections um, all over the place in life. All right, Chelsea, I'm gonna ask the next question. How does your experience as a competitive dancer inform your work in sport and performance psychology? Oh, Jessica, how long do we have? Um, so I think maybe a little bit of my story might help here. I, When I was training as a dancer, I was very lucky to reach a pre-professional level, basically meaning I was being trained to start auditioning for agents, start auditioning to be in movies, commercials, halftime shows, um, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, uh, these kinds of situations. And I was also competing at a very, very high level where the expectations were high. And what I noticed as I continued advancing was the level of performance I was able to reach in practice was not the level I could reach in high pressure situations. And unfortunately at 16 and 17 years old, there really wasn't a clear answer as to why there was this disconnect, why I could do things in practice that I just for some reason knew I, was, I could physically do them. I was physically capable of these things. And yet for some reason, I was not performing up to the potential I knew I had. So the answer at the time was, well, I guess I just need to practice more. And I got to the point of training about 40 hours a week while I was still a full-time high school student between my high school dance team and the private studio where I was training. And that helped a bit, but it really didn't solve the problem. And unfortunately, a number of factors made it so I ended up retiring from dance sooner than I wanted to. As a dancer, I stayed connected to the space in different ways, but I never found an answer. And when I think back to that time, it gave me an appreciation for so many different things. One is the obscene schedules that students, athletes, performers of any type balance, because if we think about the 1% of professional athletes who make enough money to survive just by performing and playing their sport or performing in their domain, musicians, professional dancers, that's incredible. Many of those professionals even don't make enough money and still have to work multiple jobs or they're balancing multiple types of training. So it really gave me this appreciation of that work ethic, that time management, that balancing, that burnout it also gave me the appreciation for the frustration that can exist when it's the dots aren't connecting. And when I eventually learned about sports psychology in my undergrad, it was actually the last semester of my undergraduate work. I heard the phrase and funny enough, very quick side tangent. It was in a professions in psychology class. My undergrad training was in psychology and our professor said, oh, there's also this thing called sports psychology, 
but it's not really a thing. So we're not going to talk about it. To which I went, <laughs> I'm, yes, Allison Jane, thank you for laughing at that because reflecting back now, hilarious. But all I needed was for him to say that phrase, sports psychology, and I immediately went, wait a minute, I need to learn more about this. What are you talking about? So I started researching, started Googling, and I, Allison Jane, I had to laugh when you started the episode that you opened it to psychology nerds, because I've always identified as a nerd. I love learning. At one point in elementary school, I had to wear glasses because I was reading so much. I had exhausted my eyes. I mean, I just love learning. So I decided graduate school was for me. And I looked into graduate school programs for sports psychology, still not really fully understanding what this field was. And it took less than two weeks. And I was incredibly bought in because it started giving me language for my own disconnect. And from there helped me realize that I could now use this understanding, my own lived experience with this more um, formal training to go out and help other people, hopefully connect their own dots. And I've never looked back since. To me, that is the most incredibly rewarding and exciting way to use my time, energy, and effort to help people just think about performance in a different way. And so I think for me, without those performance experiences at that competitive level within that domain, I don't know that I would have had that same motivation or passion and then coming back to something you said in the intro, Jessica, I don't know that without that, I would be as driven and as passionate about working with non-traditional populations or non-sport populations as I am. Because to me, I am a huge proponent. These are not just sports skills. These are life skills. So I don't care what, I don't care if you are a street sweeper. I don't care if you are a surgeon I don't care if you are cleaning. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your home life is. These help, these skills help. Um, and so that really is something that I'm passionate about in my work, both teaching and uh, consulting. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that, Chelsea. What a hilarious anecdote about how you got into the field. Um, I wonder what that professor would think if you went back and, and discuss, <laughs> let him know what you do now. Uh, that's that's so funny. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about your consulting with with non-traditional groups. Uh, you know, could you share maybe some memorable experiences that you have consulting with non-traditional groups? I don't know, students, uh, sorry, it's, uh, nursing students or musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. Nursing students was a really amazing experience. I had that opportunity when I was um, late in graduate school. And the idea was you know, these nursing students come in in cohorts and they have to work together, exhausting hours, exhausting work, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And ultimately the idea was to come in and do some team building to one, build them as a team that they felt this comfort working together, trusting one another, but then also to plant seeds of skills that hopefully would serve them well into their careers. I'll say as a side tangent, I have a huge heart for first responders and, and um, medical professionals like nurses who truly do run into spaces that most people are trained to run out of. Um, they run toward things that we are, our survival instinct tells us to run from. And there's such power and strength in that, that if we can give them skills 
to not only help others better, but also care for themselves. Whew, that's incredible to me for sustainability, for their well-being um, and their overall just um, capacity. So that was very powerful to me and, and spoke to a part of my heart that is really meaningful. I think another space that I find really encouraging or motivating is working with corporate clients. These are people we tend to assume just have it all together already. Uh, in my work that I do specifically, I have the privilege of working with clients who are high, high level in a very elite firm. For confidentiality purposes, I'm not going to say much more than that, um, but we're talking negotiating contracts, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and we think of those people, well, if you've made it that far, you've got it figured out, you're done. And ultimately, yes, they've done a lot of things well, very similar to elite athletes. They also are hungry to learn. They're hungry to keep growing. They're hungry, not just for themselves, but because of the level they're at, how to serve the people below them, the people who they are training. They want to create spaces that are safe and allow for mistakes and allow for growth in a way that doesn't just serve this firm now, but serves them well generations from now. And that drive is for me as a consultant, both exciting and challenging because it makes me want to make sure I'm at the top of my game for them. It really challenges me to make sure I know the most recent theories. I know the most recent literature with traditional sport clients. I might not talk to them about theory. I might not talk to them about reading a ton more because if you ask a high schooler to read another book, they are not going to do it. And then they're going to roll your eyes and then, you know, move on. But these are people who want that information. And so it's really brought about this new interest in podcasts, making sure I'm listening to podcasts that could be helpful for them, books, articles, all types of media. Um, and that's really taken, I think, my consulting approach to a, a different level. And then I will say the performing arts will always have a special place in my heart. Yes, because of my background. But once again, they have a job of making something so challenging look so easy. An actor is supposed to be completely lost. Them as a person should be lost so that I am absorbed in the character in the story. A dancer should make it look as though that movement can be done by anyone in the audience. It should be look, it should look effortless and completely clean. A musician, that, that music uh, should be so fluid that the audience can't help but be moved emotionally, but also just start swaying physically, right? Because of the power of that movement and being so absorbed into it. And that contradiction of it seeming easy and yet being challenging is a balance I don't know that we find in a ton of, of spaces. Um, and I, I just have such a heart. These are also spaces that don't always have all the resources to help them be successful. They're expected to do a lot on their own. They're expected to invest a lot of their own money to find this. And so for me, 
if I can come into that context and offer an added resource, um, that's really powerful for me. So I could, I could go on for days there, but I hope that kind of answers your question, Allison Jane. No, I can, and I can really hear when you talk, Chelsea, I can just hear the passion you have coming through. It's, it's so wonderful to talk to someone who is so passionate about their field and you can, you can really feel it. Uh, and I, I hope, our, I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you. Um, Chelsea, given your devol- uh, diverse consulting experience, have you noticed any patterns, if you will, universal mental barriers across different fields? Um, I, I'm curious where you go with this because you've made it in, in this last question abundantly clear that at the end of the day, we're all, you know, we're all just humans trying to do our best. And uh, mm-hmm. but I would be curious if you run across sometimes uh, the same barriers over and over again, regardless of domain. Ooh, that is a phenomenal question. And I kind of want to sit with it for a second because I I want to make sure I don't rush past something, but I'm sure I will miss something. I think a couple come to mind right off the bat. One is as we continue moving up, whatever our domain, the, the role of imposter syndrome that can come in whether that's me doubting my ability, whether that's me doubting my belonging in this space, do I truly fit in here? Do I belong here? Do I have a home here? It's been interesting to see the sneaky ways imposter syndrome comes up. And one of the things that I like to remind people when that voice starts coming up is the origins of um, imposter syndrome, it actually started as something called imposter feeling, that it was not a syndrome. And we can debrief the, or unpack the connotations of that word for days, but it was actually identified as a feeling. And I think that's more accurate language because if we can name it imposter feeling, it has a sense of being dynamic, fluctuating, arising at moments and moving away at moments. And for me, I firmly believe in this is my philosophy. Every emotion has a place. Every emotion serves a purpose. And to steal from a dear friend of mine, every emotion has a superpower. And so if we're thinking about the superpower of imposter feeling, it helps me slow down. It helps me ask some questions. What can I contribute to this space? What can I contribute to this group? What can I do better? We all have areas for growth. I don't care how far advanced you are in your chosen field. We can always grow. And then it matters what I do with that. So I think the the second one that comes up for me a lot, Jessica, in this question is myths that exist about things like confidence or self-doubt. And I will preface this part with... uh, disclaimer that I take a very acceptance and commitment approach. I take a very mindfulness approach versus more of a CBT approach. Um, I do think CBT and positive psychology have a wonderful place. There's a ton of evidence supporting them and they are amazing. I think sometimes the messages of CBT and positive psychology, however, have gotten twisted that emotions we might label as heavier or darker than are bad. 
And if I feel those emotions or if I feel that doubt or if I feel that hesitation, then that must mean I'm not confident or that must mean I'm not ready or that must mean that I can't do this thing. And the reality is when we have this conditional commitment of if I feel good, then I'll perform well. If I feel confident, then I'll speak up in the meeting. If I feel fully prepared and 100%, then things will go well. Goodness gracious, we're going to be waiting a long time. And what do I miss out on in the meantime? And so I think for me, identifying these expectations or these assumptions or these myths that we've bought into and challenging them to a point of freedom and openness and curiosity maybe gives us some space to challenge ourselves and try some things we might not have otherwise. Knowing I could fall flat on the face and maybe it was still worth it. And for me, recognizing, and they show up differently depending on the person, depending on the group, depending on the context, but knowing the insidious ways they come up and, and the role that these unconscious assumptions or these unconscious expectations can play, it's interesting to try to shine the light on them and name them so we can move past them and make a more intentional, deliberate choice rather than driving our behavior without us even knowing it. So those are the two that come to mind immediately, Jessica. I am sure the second we wrap up this conversation, I'm going to think of two or three more, uh, but hopefully that's at least a good start for people. Yeah, no, I'm I'm already starting to think about how I can apply those <laughs> in, in, my, in my life. So thank you so yeah. much uh, for that. I'd like to transition our conversation, if you don't mind, uh, towards a little bit more towards your teaching and, and the way that you, you teach uh, sport and performance psychology. Uh, so we bump into each other sometimes in the, in the department and um, often at the microwave. Me and Chelsea meet yes. at the microwave a lot. <laughs> Wonderful uh, you, microwave conversation. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great little three-minute pause. It is. Uh, but you've mentioned to me that it's it's uh, an honor to walk through courses with students. And and I was wondering if you could share a, a memorable experience that highlights the, the mutual learning that happens in your classroom. Oh, well, I think you just summarized it with the, the end of that question, Allison Jane. It's I understand that my role is to be there to educate, to challenge, to support. I cannot tell you how much I learn every single day that I am in the classroom, whether that's a question a student asks, whether that's an experience that they share. I, I can't tell you how what a privilege it is, the story students are willing to share. I identify as an introvert. Uh, I was actually talking to one of our colleagues today about this. I identify as a pretty strong introvert. I can turn it on when I need to. I The irony is not lost on me. I am in a very extrovert, not only profession teaching, but consulting as well. I can turn it on and I know now when we wrap up, my spouse knows I'm gonna need some quiet. I'm going to need some puppy cuddle time and I'm going to need some time to decompress. And that's okay. That's how I, I recover so I can pour out. But I, I realize that speaking up in classes, and that's why I bring that introvert piece up, 
even for extroverts, it's scary to share those stories. It's share, it's scary to put myself out there, not just for a professor, but for my colleagues, my peers to hear these stories and their courage to share in and of itself inspires me. And it challenges me to reflect, am I willing to share in that same way? Am I willing to show up authentically? Am I willing to throw an idea or an experience or an answer out there, regardless of how it lands? Again, that unconditional commitment I was talking about before, right? I think that's one of the things that the way students show up, yes, the things that they, the the comments that they make or the information that they share is crucial, but the way they show up, their being to me is what's so powerful because each student I have in class, and I think this is another thing that really drives me about teaching, no two classes are the same. Next fall, I might get to teach the theories class that I have the joy of having Jessica in right now. It will be completely different because it will be a room of different students who learn differently, who interact differently, and so that too is incur. It's challenging for me as an educator. Whew, okay, I thought I had it, but I don't have it. Let me figure it out. And that accountability that they give me to make sure I understand the content, that I'm creating a space where each student feels a sense of belonging, that I'm asking questions in a way that allows students of different backgrounds, different lived experiences, different identities to show up authentically that to me helps me um, just really keep growing, really keep ensuring that each time is a little bit better. Not, I'm not going to make huge strides. I, I got to have that realistic expectation, but each time can I show up a little bit better? And so that two-way learning, I try to communicate, but even I, I appreciate this conversation, Allison Jane, because I've realized this semester, I haven't done a good enough job thanking students for what they've brought to class and thanking students for what they've taught me. Um, and and I'm that's going to be my challenge for myself next week is, is sharing that message. Um, because it is such a, I don't take for granted the privilege that we have as professors. We are trusted, and especially, you know, in the undergrad, it's one type of training this breadth of training, this, you know, this generalized training of what is psychology in these different areas of psychology. And then with graduate training, this specificity of training. Okay, you've chosen this path of training. And now what does that look like? How do we go deeper? You're in the pool. Let's get you into the deep end. How do we get you? Let's take the floaties off. Let's get you deeper into that pool. That is a, that takes a lot of trust and I don't take that lightly. And so I, um, I do try to show up in a way that lives out what I'm asking students to, um, to hopefully help them feel safe to do the same. I love that. And I just want to throw out there, um, in my experience in your classroom, your willingness to pivot has been, um, you know, to me, I shouldn't assume, but, you know, I, I think you take feedback as the semester goes along and then you you iterate and you pivot as needed and necessary. And so certainly there are people that they would like 
whatever the plan was handed out in September, they would like that to still be the plan in December, please. And it is, but you have just gently maneuvered things as needed to, I really think, you know, just accommodate the needs of the group that you have right now. And so um, it's really evident that you're, you're very present and dealing with the cohort that you have in front of you, not how it went last semester, or how it might go next semester. So that that mutual learning is is very evident um, from our seat as well. Thank you, Jessica. That means the world. Thank you. Oh, this is so wonderful to watch. <laughs> I I kind of wish that I I had uh, you know I could have my students come in and tell me how awesome I was. But this is no, this is beautiful. Um, and and I think it it speaks to to just how beloved you already are in the department, Chelsea, after, you know, only being here six months and, and yet, um, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I am going to pivot again though, uh, because I, I want to, uh, talk about your book, Every Count Matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, you, alongside your co-author, uh, Ashley Coca Craney, you wrote a book that's called Every Count Matters, Mindset Training for Dancers. Um, and so I guess my first question is what inspired you to write that book? Oh, it was, that was our passion project. I had the joy of meeting Ashley in my doctoral program. We were both at West Virginia and she was also a competitive dancer and also competitive cheerleader. She also coached. Uh, so we both have the coaching teaching experience and as we went through the program together, we joined in this comparing uh, stories. You know, man, I wish I had this when I was at this competition, or man, I wish I had this when I was at this audition, or when we were training for this nationals. And we realized there is such a huge gap in sharing this information with the dance community. Now, Performing arts in general, I think, benefit from this. I shared a little bit about that part of my passion earlier, but because of my background being dance and her background being competitive dance as well, we thought, you know, okay, we have this training, we have this experience, why don't we put something together that's written for dancers, that is written for them and is really practical with here's what this skill is, be it motivation or confidence or focus. And here are some things to think about. And then here's some stuff to try. Go give this a shot. One of the things that we promote, not just in our field, but in the program here at UWGB is that there's no one size fits all approach to mental skills training. What I do with Allison Jane will not work with Jessica. And so we have to take this very individualized approach. And we realized it was quite an undertaking to write a book to a massive audience while also taking into account this individualized approach. And that was maybe one of the biggest challenges of it. How do we hold space for different lenses and world experiences and, and um, ways of approaching dance as a, a competitive setting or a performance domain? But the challenge was worth it for us because we knew how much it could benefit that population. We knew how much hunger there was for improvement and different ways to get that little edge. And so for us, it was just exciting. And I'll also say a little shout out to Ashley. For us, it was just fun because 
I would write a little bit and then I'd send a chapter to her for her to write a little bit. And then based on what she wrote, I would then get inspired to write a little bit more. And so it was also just this very interesting comparison of philosophies of consulting, philosophies of performing, and how to bring that together in a cohesive way. Because I think that then helped us broaden our reach. And and like I said, try to be able to um, present ideas in a way that spoke to more people versus just a few. So it was something we were so excited to do. We were incredibly floored when we found a publisher uh, and then just beyond excited once it was actually released. And Unfortunately, it came out very soon, uh, very close to when the pandemic started. So that impacted our ability to get the word out and, and market in some traditional ways. But the feedback we have gotten so far has been really positive. And let me hold, uh, let me give the microphone to my own imposter feeling for a second. The fact that people have even, that one person has read it is shocking to me. Um, so the fact that we've gotten some feedback from multiple people is just an incredible honor. So it was, it was a labor of love to be sure. And something that we just hope helps. Yeah. So, so that, I'm so glad you brought up, you know, the difficulties in, in writing to, to multiple audiences, because I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but this book is for all dancers of any skill level and any style. Yeah, it, it is. We wanted to make it as general as possible. We tried to balance examples from dancers who are training more in that performance domain. So think more of your ballet companies and to dancers who are training to compete, dancers who are training more on that commercial side of things because both are important, both are valuable, and both face similar struggles. I'm trying to find the right words. Similar struggles, different application maybe, but right, the, the struggle of performing well, that struggle of making it look easy when it's really difficult, the pressures of a subjective sport, right? You have no control how people, you don't win or lose, you might get a spot, not get a spot. You might make an audition, not make an audition. But even that is very subjective. So we did. We tried to make the audience as broad as possible. My marketing wheels are just spinning. This has podcasts written all over it, Chelsea. <laughs> the break, the, the like, like these shows that now you know break down each episode in a podcast episode, like that. Like that's your next. That's your what's next for this book. But that's just what I'm hearing here. Well, Jessica, we'll hire you in next semester, maybe. We'll bring you in. We'll chat. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Sounds good. I think uh, as we're as we're running a little late on time, I'm going to skip over to questions from the audience, if that's all right with you, Chelsea. Sounds wonderful. Uh, so um, as I, I've mentioned to you, we, we do an Ask the Expert uh, kind of um, section here. So I'm going to play you some some questions that have been sent in by our audience members and, and you can just answer them on air. Hi, I'm Sarah and I'm interested in joining the sports psychology graduate program in a few years. How do you become a certified mental performance consultant and what can you do with this certification after you achieve it? Wonderful question. Absolutely. The first thing I will plug is the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. The website is appliedsportspsych.org. That's where you can find information about the organization, one of the organizations that sponsors the certification. There is also way more reading than I'm sure you ever want to do about certification, but there's a lot of resources there to help you. 
So what's involved is essentially a combination of coursework and hours. So to meet the requirements for coursework, there are eight different knowledge areas, six of which we meet in our coursework within the UWGB program. And then we hold space for you within your electives to meet the other two coursework requirements. So it's a chance for you to actually get outside of our program, go learn from other voices, go learn from other professionals, go learn from other uh, domains and really broaden your knowledge a little bit more. So some of those knowledge areas are things like, of course, sports psychology. So you have to take a few classes in that domain. But some others are things like uh, counseling micro skills or something like exercise physiology. So understanding how the body works. So like I said, there are those eight knowledge areas that you'll meet. And then the second piece is supervised practicum hours. That is a long story of the way that those hours are, are developed. And I am more than happy if you'd like more information, please reach out, we can chat through it. But essentially you need 400 supervised hours, 200 of which wow. are, yeah, 200 of which are direct contact. So working with a client, practicing, delivering, services to clients and then the other 200 or more of your support services so getting supervision or observing learning all those kinds of things so those two things then once you meet those two criteria you sit for the exam and then once you pass the exam you are officially certified now our certification program is actually relatively new it went through a huge change in please give me some grace 2017 ish 2016 2017 and this new program is significantly better we're now an accredited certification very similar to like athletic trainers strength and conditioning coaches licensed counselors and psychologists we are a certified or sorry an accredited certification now and what that means is that organizations now are starting to require certification for you to go out and be a professional mental performance consultant. So one of my favorite statistics to share with people is the number one employer of mental performance consultants right now is actually the military. A lot of students after graduating will go work with the military for a few years, gain some incredible experience, and then transition to other spaces. Corporate populations are another space that's growing exponentially, also looking for certified consultants because they want to make sure they're bringing in people who are the most well-trained and with really strong experience. I joke with people all the time, you could go to an athletic trainer who's not certified, but for me personally, I'd like to go to somebody with that certification to show me that they've done the training, they've done what they need to do to have that level of competency that I mentioned at the start of, of our conversation today. So that's what you go do. You then go out and do the work consulting. That could be with professional teams. Major League Baseball is huge in this. Other leagues are starting to follow. Women's soccer is starting to follow and create some positions. You can consult in colleges. There are, I have many, many colleagues who consult either with college teams or within athletic departments. You can consult with high school athletes, youth athletes. There are so many, one of the beautiful things about our field is there are so many applications you can kind of do almost anything with this. You can kind of create your own path once you become a CMPC. Wow, thank you so much for that, that detailed answer on, on how you get there and what you can do when, you, when you have achieved that certification. 
Hello, my name is Adriana Boson, and I am majoring in psychology with a certificate in entrepreneurship. Um, I was just wondering uh, what specific psychological techniques are commonly used to address challenges such as performance anxiety uh, and motivation in sports when it comes to athletes uh, in psychology or in your area of study. That's a whole class. Okay. Um, there, I'll try to be as brief as possible, but you know, I get excited and just start talking. Performance anxiety and motivation problems. On the surface, I'll go very vague because it's going to depend on the individual. I am sure Jessica will tell you horror stories about how many times I've told her the answer is it depends in class. <laughs> so, about performance anxiety. There's a few things. The first that I like to do is educate people about the brain and how our brain works, where anxiety comes from, that anxiety actually exists to protect us, but also that anxiety is there based on future focus. So a few things we can do is slow down, breathe, not just breathe, rhythmic breathing, deep breathing, belly breathing. And slowing down because when we get anxious, we speed up. We try to, our brain is protecting us. So it's trying to get us out as quickly as possible. If we can slow down, we have a little bit more control over the decisions that we make. Um, as far as motivation goes, I pull from an existentialist perspective at times. One of the people I got to train with, Ken Revisa, was very driven by an existential approach. And I very much have picked that up from him. So when it comes to motivation, one of the things I love doing with people is coming back to the why. Why do you want to do this thing? Why is it important to you? There's a very famous Nietzsche quote, he who has a why can bear almost anyhow. And those of you who love reading, please read Viktor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning. It is a powerful story of that quote. But for me, that really helps us get to the foundation of motivation. What's the why? And then we work to dispel some myths about motivation, that it probably isn't you're either motivated or you're not. You're probably just more motivated to do something else. I might really be motivated to exercise, but I'm just more motivated to binge watch Welcome to Wrexham tonight with my spouse, right? And so those competing motives help us understand, okay, what's pulling me away? And is my why strong enough to pull me back? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then we go from there. Uh, so very brief answer. But again, if you're interested in learning more, please take my intro to sports psychology class if you're an undergrad or join us in the graduate program. <laughs> hey, hey, that was an excellent segue for, for promoting that class. Um, I think that um, I, you did an, an amazing job. If someone had asked me how to summarize like a whole big part of my field in, in that short amount of time, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So congrats on that. Thank you. Hello, my name is Colton. As a player on an esports team, I was wondering if you had any experiences consulting with esports players, and in what ways, if any, might consulting with an esports player be different than consulting with an athlete in a more physical sport? This is a huge area where performance psychology is exploding right now for many reasons. One, esports is going to be the next revenue producing NCAA sport. Let's just name it right now. Uh, worldwide, esport athletes are making contracts that are 
overshadowing professional athletes in the US. And so there is not only a population of these athletes, but there's a huge audience. Esport, streaming, things like Twitch are just huge. To answer this question directly, I personally have not had the opportunity to work with esport athletes yet. It is a space I am fascinated by. I think it's an incredible performance domain that though the physical exertion doesn't look like a traditional sport, uh, almost kind of, I think of like NASCAR, right? You, you're not up running, you're not up sprinting, but it is a physical drain. I have worked with some colleagues who have worked with esport athletes, and I actually just had the honor of editing a book with case studies. And one of the domains we talked about was esport. And I will say within that space, some of the things that we're learning in performance psychology is the importance of prioritizing time management and deliberate training because you can get so lost in practicing and playing, you lose track of time, you lose track of effective nutrition, you lose track of effective sleep patterns because many esport athletes have to practice into what is their night to compete against players across the country, or excuse me, across the globe and how that can impact sleep patterns. So teaching esport athletes about deliberate practice, when do we turn on, when do we not? What are we training today? What are we not? And then so many esport athletes function in teams. And so where we can come in as performance consultants is working on cohesion, communication, leadership, expectation management. So much of what we do does apply to esports and the different obstacles and pressures that they face. We just apply it a little bit differently. It just looks a little bit different for them, but not in a way it no longer applies. So uh, another kind of long answer, but not something I've done, something I'm very excited about, especially the potential moving forward um, and a culture I'm eager to learn more about too. Yeah, exciting. Looking at, looking forward future there um, towards where where sport and performance psychology perhaps is, is going in the in the future. Yeah. Uh, so we are coming to the end of our time. Uh, Jessica, I just wanted to, to uh, hand it over to you if you have any questions you want to ask from the graduate student perspective. I don't have any questions. I think what we got from other students, I think that was great. I think very um, informative to whether you're familiar with this area of study or not. Um, as I said earlier, it's just so important to me that listeners um, connect to the fact that sports psychology is uh, applicable to um, all of us and uh, and so like that, that, that's the biggest thing. And Chelsea's made that very clear. And, uh, and I'm glad for that. Excellent. Well, then thank you. I, I want to give a huge thank you to you, Chelsea, for, for coming on Psych and Stuff and answering the questions from me and Jessica and our listeners. And I want to thank Jessica for co-hosting with me. Uh, this has been this has been great. Thank you both so, so much. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Spray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Valise. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Uh, Chelsea Wooding, 
If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Allison Jane Martingano. Keep being amazing.